Now, if you have a Bible, take it out um, and um, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you want to use one of the uh, Bibles that are in the chair racks, there are blue Bibles that are in uh, some of the chair racks. 1 Thessalonians 2 is on page 1255, so you can turn directly there. The words will also be up on the screen as I read them in a minute. And we're studying this letter uh, this fall, and it might very well be the earliest letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, at least that we have in the, in the Bible. And, and 1 Thessalonians was written uh, to a church in the Greek city of wait for it, ready? Thessalonica, that's why they call it Thessalonians. And it was his first letter, which is why they call it First Thessalonians. Well, Thessalonica was a strategic city, uh, a strategic city, political, commercial, occupied, uh, like most of the land surrounding the Mediterranean uh, region, occupied by the Roman Empire. And Paul, an early Christian leader in the first century, had visited this city of Thessalonica on one of his missionary journeys. Now, he didn't stay very long. He wasn't in town very long. He actually got into a bunch of trouble while he, was, while he was there. But a group of people, both from Jewish and from Greek backgrounds, heard the message of Jesus from him and from his companions while he was there, and a small church was, was started. Now, Paul is writing to them this letter because they had some questions. After he left, um, they had some questions about when Jesus was, was coming back, about what was going to happen at the end of the age. And, and we'll get to some of those specifics as to how Paul answers those questions as we move through the fall. But, but as we've started this letter over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that Paul is grounding the Thessalonians in, in what, is, what, is, what are some pretty core concepts, right? Chapter 1 that we looked at over the last two weeks, he gave them, he gave us a helpful definition, working definition of what a Christian is. Uh, last week, we looked at what a Christian church is. Now, chapter 2 continues from that with another fairly fundamental question as Paul talks about his interactions with the people in Thessalonica and how he approaches his own missionary work, but it's a fairly fundamental question as well. So let's read this passage, verses 1 to 9 of 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. If you're able to stand, let me invite you to stand. We, we do this out of a sign of respect for God's word. And when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of God, and I'll invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, you were ready to share, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, so here's, here's my question. This is, actually a, this is something actually a question that I think about all the time. It's something I think all of us should be thinking about, but particularly in my role, uh, it's a question I think about all the time. Here's what I ask. How should a Christian act 
as they proclaim the gospel of God in a world that doesn't often agree with Christians, right? How should a Christian act in a world that doesn't often agree with Christians? You understand the question, right? It's a very important for, question for Christians to answer today. Right? A lot is riding on how we, on how we answer it. I was reading um, in one of the commentaries this week, New Testament scholar uh, G.K. Beale. Uh, he says, he writes, one of the greatest obstacles today to the spread of the gospel is often the church itself. Greatest obstacles to the spread of the gospel is the church itself. What does he mean? Well, he says that it's not very difficult to think of examples of Christians over the last 20 years. He, said, he says, if I just think over the last 20 years, it's not hard to think of examples where you've seen Im immorality and greed so much so to the degree that the world is just repulsed. Now, he was thinking over the last 20, 20 years, and he was, he was writing in 2003 when he wrote that. Right? So we have another 20 years since then where we can come up with our own additions to the, to the list, perhaps. But the point of what we want to do this morning is not so much to bash the worst examples of hypocrisy that exist around us. It's to answer that very relevant question for you and me. How does your treatment of other people matter, right? How does your personal behavior matter when it comes to how people hear the gospel, right? Kids, let me talk to you for a second. Adults, you're welcome to listen to. But kids, this is what I want to talk to you, right? I want you to think about this. You go to school. You go to school this week. Right? Or you play on a sports team or you play in a band or something like that. And there are a lot of people there perhaps who are not, who are not Christians. There, right? right? And they know that you're a Christian. Maybe they know that, they know that you go to church at least. Right? Now I want you to think about that. Right? They, know that you're, they know that you're a Christian and you're in, you're in a school or you're in band or you're in a sports team with them. Um, and, then, and then you treat them meanly. Right? You're mean to them. Right? Or they see you being mean to other people. Right? Or they see, you, they see you behaving in a way or living in a way that they know is not, is not the way the, the Bible says you should, you should live. Right? If they see that, how you're acting like that, right? do you think that makes it easier or harder for them to believe that the Bible is true? Easier or harder? If they know you're a Christian and yet, and yet you treat them meanly and they see you treating other people meanly, right? Does it make it easier or does it make it harder for them to believe the Bible is true? Makes it harder, right? That's one way to think about this important question that we're talking about, right? The other way to think about this important question, how should a Christian act in a world where the world doesn't often agree with Christians, right? If we live in a world where people don't like Christianity or they don't like Christians, right? Again, kids, right? What should we do? What should we do? How should we behave? Right? If, if people are mean to you, right? maybe, maybe even mean to you because you're a Christian, maybe they say something unkind to you because you're a Christian, right? how should you treat them back? Should you be mean right back? That's one option. That's what some people say. They give it to you, you give it to them. Or should you just be quiet? And just not say anything at all. Maybe pretend, maybe even pretend that you're not a Christian so that they can't make fun of you. That's what other people say you should do. Or at least that's what other people kind of act like. Just be quiet. Just don't say anything at all. Just pretend like you're not a Christian. Maybe they'll leave you alone. These are really important questions. This is exactly the stuff that the Apostle Paul had to figure out. And I know he lived 2,000 years ago, but he had to figure out the same stuff that we have to figure out. And if anything, it was worse for him than it's worse for us, uh, than, it, than it is for us. When Paul first went to Thessalonica, right, they did more than just laugh and call him names and not let him play in any reindeer games. Much worse than that, right? They tried to throw him in jail, 
And that was on top of what he had, this is, that was in Thessalonica, on top of what he had already experienced when he visited Philippi, right? You saw it in verse 2. In Philippi, he had already suffered and been shamefully treated. And yet here's the interesting part. The negative way that he had been treated in Philippi didn't keep him quiet when he went to Thessalonica. Again, in verse 2, he says that in the midst of much conflict, right? In other words, in the middle of all this opposition, he says, verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Wow, get that? Right, Paul is still declaring the good news about Jesus even in a world that doesn't agree with him. So Paul is a pretty experienced guide for us in answering this question. All right, so back to our question. How should a Christian act when they tell people the good news about Jesus in a world that doesn't agree with Christians? Well, Paul tells us. He tells us what to avoid. He tells us what to pursue. And he tells us who to imitate. Or at least we can infer from what he's saying who to imitate. We need to know who to imitate. What to avoid, what to pursue, and who to imitate. Now, first, what to avoid. Let's start by looking at that. All right, first, verse 3. Look at verse 3. There's three things here to avoid. Verse 3, Paul says, Our appeal does not spring from one error, two impurity, or three, any attempt to deceive. All right? Okay, so you should avoid error, impurity, and deception. Very practical. Avoid error. Right? In other words, make sure that you don't have a faulty message. As you go and as you go into a world that doesn't always agree with Christians and you tell them about the gospel of God, you should avoid telling them something that's not true. If you're going to be talking to people, take the time to know what you believe. You don't have to be a PhD theologian. You don't even have to be a grown-up, right? But avoid saying things that you, that, that, that you know aren't true, that actually aren't in the, in the Bible. Don't give people a false gospel. Don't give them what's not true, right? That's the first thing to avoid. Avoid the wrong message. Now, second thing, verse 3, also verse 3, avoid impurity. Now, this could be referring to a couple of different things. Some commentators think that it's referring to impure motives. In other words, you should avoid telling people about Jesus for the wrong reasons. Now, what could some of those reasons be? We'll talk about that actually in a minute, verses 5 and 6. Other commentators think that avoiding impurity here is really more about avoiding immor uh, impure behavior. Right, specifically, maybe sexual Im impurity. And this would certainly be true as well, right? You should avoid impure behavior so that, so that you're not uh, acting in a way that's contrary to the message that you're, that you're telling people, right? Impure uh, sexual behavior specifically throughout the centuries and even with prominent examples in recent years, it can do serious damage to, to how people take the Christian message, how they understand it, the credibility of of what you say, right? So it almost doesn't matter, the interpretive difference between what might be meant by impurity here, right? You should, be, you should avoid impure motives and you should avoid impure behavior. Now, the third thing to avoid in verse three is deception. In other words, avoid deceptive methods. This is not exactly the same thing as avoiding error or else it wouldn't be listed separately. This means to avoid using deception as a method to, to kind of draw people in. In other words, don't try to trick people into believing the truth. All right, this might be a helpful distinction. A Christian revival in history, if you ever hear someone talk about, you know, Christian revival throughout history is when God's spirit comes into a time and a place and a culture in a powerful way, shows people their sin, leads them through repentance and by the grace of God to faith in Jesus. That's a Christian revival. Now, on the other hand, Christian revivalism is a historic phenomenon where you have a dynamic leader who, using his uh, speaking ability or his rhetorical skill or his skill as a as a showman to manipulate people 
Now, this would have not just been, this is not just a 19th century kind of, uh, you know, revivalism uh, kind of phenomenon. The Greeks would have had examples of this in their own, their own day, right? One of the chief forms of entertainment, particularly in, a, particularly in a prominent city like Thessalonica, one of the chief forms of entertainment, you know, what you would do like on a, you know, on a, a Friday night or something, is you would go to hear the traveling professional philosophers and speakers when they came to town. Now, it sounds, I mean, that sounds incredibly boring, right? What are we going to do this Friday? Ah, let's go here. There's a guy in town. He's talking philosophy. Let's go hear him. It doesn't sound, but these, but these guys were, they were dynamic. They were on the circuit, right? They were, they were, they were the show. These were skilled speakers. They knew all the slick tricks of, of rhetoric. And Paul is saying that, look, you guys are very familiar with how this works. You should avoid that. Avoid talking like that. So those are the three things to avoid in verse 3. Now, there are also three things to avoid in verses 5 and 6. Paul says that we didn't come, look at verses 5 and 6, with one, words of flattery, two, a pretext of greed, or three, seeking glory from people. Again, very practical stuff, right? What should you avoid? Verses 5 and 6 say that you should avoid being motivated by approval, by money, and by fame. Now, very quickly, right? First, avoid words of flattery. What's flattery? Right? Flattery is like, it's, it's the excessive use of compliments to the point where someone doesn't really mean it and you're just trying to get something from someone else by, by telling them these things, right? It's, it's insincerity. It's insincere words that you don't actually mean. And when that happens, it actually, instead of, you know, when someone does that, it actually doesn't increase your trust in them. It actually decreases your trust in them, right? If you've ever had the experience of someone who just comes up and they're just laying it on. I mean, they're just telling you how amazing you are and this and that, right? What's your first reaction, right? What are you trying to sell me, right? It actually doesn't increase your trust in them. It undermines your trust in them, right? Everybody knows. Everybody can sense when they're being buttered up, when someone's just laying it on thick. It doesn't work. It's deceptive, and most of the time, it's because it's done by someone who desperately wants you to, to like them, right? In other words, avoid using flattery word, flattering words. Now, second thing to avoid in verses 5 and 6 is also in verse 5. Avoid telling people about Jesus as a pretext for greed. Now, the word translated pretext here, it literally means to, to put on a mask or to put on a cloak, right? In other words, to hide, right? Avoid using words as a, as a as a way to hide your own, your own motivation of greed, right? In this case, he's saying it's very possible for Christians to hide what, the, what they're really after, and what they're really after maybe is financial gain. Now, in a culture that's largely hostile to Christianity, like Paul's world, or increasingly hostile to Christianity, maybe like ours, you might say, wait, I don't get it. How financially lucrative can it be? I mean, if someone doesn't like Christianity, then how are you going to speak to them in such a way where they're going to give you money if they don't like it to begin with, right? It's actually, that's probably, if Paul's thinking about greed, it's probably not those people that Paul has in mind, right? The people that are probably being targeted with the motivation of greed are probably the Christians, right? And that's entirely plausible, right? Any, any fundraising consultant will tell you that it's much more lucrative for the fundraising cause if you ask for money at a time when people perceive that they are threatened. Right? You, know, you kind of need, need to make people anxious a little bit. You even need to make them angry a little bit, they'll tell you. And then, if you're making a promise to protect them in some way, they'll give you lots of money. The greater the anxiety, the greater the fear, the more money they'll give. It's very tempting. And Paul says you need to avoid that. Now, last thing, verse 6, he says, 
we didn't seek glory from the people, from you or from others. In other words, what should we avoid? We should avoid seeking fame. Right? And the temptation here is, is very real, and it's tied into to words of approval, seeking the approval of, of people. We want to be well thought of, but sharing the, the, the news about Jesus can be, can be motivated by a quest for, for personal fame. Again, sometimes it's just among other Christians, but, you know, book contracts, the podcast circuit, the headline speaker slots at all the big conferences, right? They can be great platforms for sharing the truth about Jesus, or they can be temptations to just make it more about you than about him. Now, I, this, this encouragement by the Apostle Paul to avoid this, this is incredibly humbling, right? I have to tell you for ministers like me, right? Who, who love, if, if we're honest, who love for people to tell them how great they are? Right, Roland Hill, you've probably never heard of Roland Hill, um, but he was a popular English preacher, late 1700s, early 1800s, very dynamic, very gifted. One uh, morning after he had finished preaching, a woman rushed up to him uh, after the service and she couldn't tell him, wait to tell him. You know, how, she, said, she comes up to him and she says, that was a great sermon. That was an amazing sermon. I can't just tell you how amazing that sermon was. And he responded to her, he said, you know, that's just what the devil told me as I came down to talk to you. You see what he's saying? Message to myself here, right? Maybe you can benefit too. Don't turn the proclaiming of the greatness of Jesus into a secret way of proclaiming the greatness of you. So those are the things to avoid. And they're important, right? Our conduct matters. There was a famous Greek philosopher, Seneca was his name. He lived in Paul's day. He wrote a letter about morals. Almost all the philosophers would have written something on morality, what to do, what not to do, right? But Seneca... He told people that they should only allow someone to teach them. Only let them teach you, he said. Those who teach, who teach us by their lives. Who tell us what we ought to do and then prove it by practice. Who show us what we should avoid and then are never caught doing that which we have, what they have ordered us to avoid. They're the only ones you should listen to, he said. The ones who prove it by their practice those are challenging words it's not enough to say that you should just avoid certain things you need to prove it by your practice so now point number two point number one what to avoid point number two what to pursue now again let's just survey through these verses let's pull out what we what we see right we've seen what we should not be now what should we be well verse four is the contrast to to verse five and verse four says that we should be stewards of a great gift Paul says the Christians are entrusted with the gospel. It's been given to them, which means you're, it means you're an ambassador. It's not your message. It's someone else's message, right? You, should just, you just carry the news, right? Pursue that kind of understanding of who you are and, and what you're doing. The gospel is something. It is not your message. It is something that has been entrusted to you, right? And if you don't seek to please men, right? That's the negative that we saw in verse 3, then you should seek contrast to please God that's the positive in verse 4 now to please in this sense it's the same it's the same word that Paul uses in his letter to Timothy when he's talking about how a soldier acts in relationship to his superior officer he acts in a way that attempts to please him that's what we should be doing seeking to please God as our as our commander now then in verses 7 and 8 you have a list of things that we should pursue that are in contrast to the list of things to avoid in verses 5 and 6, right? What should we pursue? What should we be like? Well, Paul says we should be gentle, right? It means that we're tender. It means that we're considerate with people instead of being severe with them and hard with them. 
This should, this should be done like a nursing mother, he says. This is an interesting metaphor. Notice how the Apostle Paul chooses a feminine metaphor to convey what he's talking about here. How all Christians should be, like a nursing mother. Right? This, is, this, is, this is another metaphor of, of gentleness, giving, selfless nurturing, like a mother does for a little child, right? Like how a mother conforms her life to the needs of a newborn. But does it, does that conformity with delight? That's what he's talking about. Now then in verse 8, he further explains verse 7. Don't just share words about Jesus with people. He says, share yourself. Don't treat people as professional projects, but treat them as, as dear to you, like he says in verse 8, like he treated them. Now, this whole concept of everything we're talking about, this, this way of treating and interacting with people, this is somewhat radical. And I, I have to confess, I'm somewhat, I'm kind of a bit on a bit of a crusade here in this area, I have to confess, because what we see here is a picture of someone of undeterred boldness, but unquestionable humility at the same time. Right? Th those two things, at the same time, it's very difficult to pull off. Because if you do it right, if you pull off boldness and humility, right, then you're almost certainly going to open yourself up to take fire from both sides. Right? On the one side, if you're bold in your conviction and you're committed to truth, remember, avoiding error. This is what Paul told us. Avoid error. Right? If you're committed to that and you're bold in that, then you're going to take fire from those on your left. Right? Those, who saying that be, those who say that being a Christian today in the world in which we live, where people don't agree with Christians, right, means that you need to soften some of the sharp edges of what the Bible teaches. You can't teach that today. That's what they'll say, right? It sounds intolerant. Don't say that. Right? From, from, from this perspective, you don't want to make anyone angry ever. So what you do is you turn the gospel into, into you know, into like whipped cream. Sweet and soft. Right? But from the other side, right, if you're committed to gentleness and tender concern for people, not just for those who agree with you, but also for those who don't agree with you, well, then you're going to take fire from people on your right. Those who say that being a Christian today in a world where people don't agree with Christians means that you need to sharpen your rhetoric, right? Get out the knives, sharpen the knives, get tougher. Time to fight back, time to throw open the window and, said, and say, I'm mad as heck and I'm not going to take it anymore. Now, from this perspective, you don't care who gets angry or why they get angry. So instead of turning the gospel into whipped cream, you turn it into cold liver and you almost hope that people choke on it. But neither of those ways are what Paul presents to us here. Right? He had no fear, real fear about what people thought of him. He sought God's approval, not human approval. But that simultaneously made him more bold and more compassionate at the very same time. He didn't mind people getting angry so long as it was angry at the right thing. This is, actually, this is hard to do. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, the pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in the middle of the 20th century, early middle 20th century, right? I recently read this brilliant insight he had into how hard it is to thread this needle. He's talking about preaching, and, he, and he's telling people about Jesus, uh, talking about preaching, talking about telling people about Jesus, and this is what he says. He says, it's a wonderful thing if someone can go in, that is, go into a conversation, and not make people angry at him, but make people angry at the truth. He explains what he means. He says, anyone can make people angry in five minutes. 
it's possible, he says, for me to make people angry with me personally with little trouble at all. That is not hard. But to be able to remain in the background so that people do not see the individual but are still aroused, perhaps to hatred of the thing that's preached, that is a truly Christian approach. You see what he's saying? He's saying it's not all that hard to get people angry. Even without trying, you can do that in five minutes. But it takes incredible care to present the message of Christianity in such a way that you yourself fade in the background, fade into the background, and anger, if anger is to come, comes not at you, but comes at the message. That's really hard. But that's what we're called to pursue. Now, I still have one more point, right? Point one, what to avoid. Point two, what to pursue. Now, point three, who to imitate. And I have to tell you, right, it's very, very tempting here for me to try to go and find one of the, you know, this list of, you know, emotional stories that I have, right? A, a really powerful emotional story of some faithful Christian, a faithful pastor or missionary or just some other faithful Christian and finish with this big flourish and say, here you go, right? Go be like this. And there are, there are examples we could follow. I mean, Paul, I suppose, being the most immediate, most appropriate candidate if you were going to take an example like that, because he actually is talking about his own experience here. Right? But there's lots of contemporary examples that we could find as well. Courageous Christians whose lives match their words, right? And we could have pulled them out. And those, those examples, they're really helpful, right? We need to know that faithfulness is possible for, for us. We need people to follow. But at the end of the day, I would do you no service today Right, by telling you an emotional story of a great Christian leader. Right, I'll do that another time. And the reason why it doesn't work here is because whenever you have a situation where the essential point or takeaway of the passage is don't do this and instead do this, whenever that happens, whenever that's the essential takeaway of the, of the passage, you need to make it very clear that Christianity is very different than any other philosophy or any other religion. We were talking about Seneca a minute ago, the Greek Seneca a minute ago, right? The Greek philosopher, right? All the ancient philosophers, they all had long works that they wrote, books about don't do this and do this. All the religions of history, all the religions throughout the world today, they all have long lists of don't do this and do this. All the political factions that you encounter will tell you that being a good citizen means you don't do this and you do this. But only in Christianity... Do you have something that no other philosophy, no other religion, no other political movement possesses? Only in Christianity do you have a gospel. Paul uses the word, I said this before, uses the word four times in these nine verses. Right? Verse two, he came declaring the gospel. Verse four, he was entrusted with the gospel. Verse eight, he was sharing with them the gospel. Verse nine, he was proclaiming the gospel. But what is the gospel? He actually doesn't define it so much here because I think he largely presumed that they would have understood what he meant. But we need to make clear what it is. What is the gospel? The gospel is the life, the death, the resurrection, the rule, and the return of Jesus for our salvation. Let me say that again. It is the life, the death, the resurrection, the return, and the rule of Jesus for our salvation. And that is only in Christianity. Only Christianity says that there is not just a God who simply says, don't do this and do this. Only in Christianity do you have a God who came to earth and lived a life on our behalf, a life where he didn't do that and did do that. Right, think about this. Jesus, not some emotional inspiring story of some, 
you know, Christian that you should look at. Jesus is the ultimate example of what Paul is commending here. Jesus took fire from both sides, right? Some thought he was too harsh. That was, that, that, that his message made it too hard, right? For example, go back and look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus is clearly laying out the need for people to confront their sin, to find forgiveness only in him. And his disciples warn him in John 6. They say, look, this is a hard saying, Jesus. You got to be careful here. In other words, you might lose people here, right? You might want to tone it down a little bit. And he did lose people, that is. It says in John 6, 66, right, that many of his disciples at this point turned back and no longer wished to walk with him. Because he was uncompromising in the message that he was proclaiming, right? He took it from the left. Now, of course, Jesus also took fire from the right, too, right? Those that said, I don't know. I don't know. Seems like he's being awfully nice to those sinners and tax collectors. He's been hanging out with a lot of bad people. You know what that probably means? Probably means he's gone soft. Probably means he's gone squishy, right? That was from the right. Some thought he was too bold with the truth. Some thought he was too gentle with sinners. But Jesus was both bold with truth and gentle with sinners. Jesus perfectly didn't do that and did do that. He avoided all the right things. His ministry was never compromised by error, by impurity, by attempts to deceive. He was never motivated by flattery, by greed, or by popularity, right? Those are the things we shouldn't do, and Jesus didn't do any of them. He never sinned. Now, at the same time, he didn't just didn't do, he also did do, In other words, he pursued all the right things. He avoided all the right things, but he also pursued all the right things. He was bold. He was gentle. He sought the approval of the Father, not the approval of men. He sought the the ultimate riches. Not out of greed, but, but, but a desire for the ultimate glory of God. Paul makes a very big deal in verse six, right? That they didn't, that that he and his missionary companions didn't make demands of the Thessalonians as apostles of Christ. Right? And then he expands a little bit on that in verse 9, right? Saying, look, look we, worked, we worked hard day and night so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. And, and what he's referring to is the fact that Paul had every right as an apostle to be financially and materially supported by the Thessalonians because of his position as an apostle. It would have been perfectly appropriate for Paul to receive fair financial support for his work, for them to support him. But Paul says, we didn't do that. Why? Verse 9 that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was Paul working so the Thessalonians wouldn't have to, right? Laboring so that their burden could be light instead of heavy. Bearing the cost so that they could have the gospel presented to them because they didn't have the resources anyway. And that, in Paul's example, is a big sign that points us to what Jesus did for us, right? Jesus is self-sacrifice defined his work his death on the cross right it's labor on our behalf it's bearing our obligation for 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 a debt we couldn't pay now like the apostle paul was talking in a limited sense jesus had every right to require payment from us he had every right to demand it because of his position but he knew that we didn't have the resources Jesus could have correctly noted that his status as God required us to serve him. But he didn't take advantage of his status to be served. Instead, he used his status to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He didn't do what you do all the time. And he did do what you can never do so that you could be forgiven and free 
and approved by God. Right? And that's how we can do this. The Christian mission, that is. Right? How do you tell people about Christianity in a world where people might not like Christianity? What's the key to being effective? What's your key to your efforts not being in vain, like it says in verse 1? The key is knowing that you've been approved by God because you have heard and understood how the gospel frees you from the burden of not doing and doing through a Savior who didn't do and did do on your behalf. When you recognize that, when that penetrates down deep into your heart, you'll be bold because you now have the most amazing, the most freeing, the most satisfying, the best news that anyone could ever want to hear. And you'll be humble because you know that there is absolutely nothing that you did to earn or deserve what you've been given. You'll show mercy because you've been shown mercy. You'll be gentle because God has been gentle with you. Let's pray. Our Father, this message of what you've done for us ought to change every aspect of how we behave and how we live. You do tell us things that we should not do and things that we should do. But Lord, if we think that we can not do them or do them in any strength of willpower that we possess, then we will only end up in failure and in, in, in compromise to the truth of what you want us to share. So Lord, we pray that you would give us humility. Help us as we see our sins, even as we sin in front of other people, to repent of it quickly, that we might point people not to the goodness of ourselves, but to your goodness. Help us, Lord, to follow you in all that we do, to live lives that are examples that point people to you, not in their perfection, but in the way that they characterize mercy and love and compassion, the way that they characterize truth and boldness. Lord, help us to do that so that you might be honored. In Jesus' name, amen.